You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Russia brings war. Jesus brings peace. You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org. Prophecy has a twofold application. The first is to substantiate God's existence. Secondly, to give encouragement to every generation of believers when a section of prophecy is fulfilled. We stand now at the end of an age and are witnessing incredible movements to anchor our faith in action for the time remaining to us. Tonight we have a message of hope from the Bible. And first of all, I want to take you back 2,300 years, just 2,000 years will do, to when Jesus was at the Lake of Galilee and went up into a hilltop to teach his disciples. It's found in the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, we have what's called the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus laid out what his kingship was all about. And he taught them, and I just want to look at three passages that explain what Jesus' vision for the future was all about. So Matthew chapter 5, we have various blessings or things whereby people will be made happy. And in the sixth verse, we have this statement recorded of Jesus, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Or we could express it quite a little more simply. Happy are the humble. Humble people, meek people will be happy or blessed. And what will they receive? Jesus says, if you follow me, you will inherit the land. You'll be a possessor of part of this earth. That was Jesus' promise. It was not a promise about paradise in another place. It was about a place living on the earth. Now, if we wanted to extend that, just a few verses later, we have Jesus' words recorded when he says, be careful about what you say, particularly about Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is the city of the great king. So there he was, north of Jerusalem. He says to them, Jerusalem is the city of the great king. And of course, he was talking about himself. He says, Jerusalem is my city, and I will come back there and be a great king. But then, if you've read Matthew's Gospel, you would say, but it speaks a lot about the kingdom of heaven. Surely this means that when we die, we'll go and get our kingdom in heaven. But Jesus says it was the kingdom of heaven. And in his prayer, which he taught all of us to learn to pray, his model prayer, he prayed these words. Your kingdom come. God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. So what Jesus had in mind is that the way it is in heaven 
will be the way it's done on this earth. That's simply Jesus' plan for the future. And he is inviting us to be part of this. Now, this idea of heaven coming down to earth goes right back to the prophet Daniel. And the prophet Daniel recorded the summary of an amazing vision that the great king of Babylon had, King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was ruler over Babylon, which is today in Iraq. You've got a rough idea of where Iraq is in our world. And in summing up what this king had dreamt about, an awful dream he'd had, he said, really, there's a happy ending to the story because the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. God is going to set up a kingdom which will not end like all other human kingdoms have ended. And, and what about this kingdom? It will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And Daniel was talking about all the human kingdoms will be broken to pieces and God's kingdom will be set up on the earth and it shall stand forever. There in simple terms is where God wants to take the world. He wants to destroy human kingdoms and establish a kingdom, his own kingdom, which will last forever. So what Nebuchadnezzar saw, and we have Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel here looking at this awful statue, which was what the king had dreamt about. Daniel's only a young fellow, probably a young man of about 19, 18, maybe younger. But he is called upon by God to explain to this king about this dream about the statue. And he saw a statue which was a series of metals, gold head, silver chest, bronze belly and iron legs. And Nebuchadnezzar was told by Daniel, this represents human kingdoms. Right? Now, what's going to happen to human kingdoms? What the king saw in his dream was a little stone came and the right-hand side smashed this statue on the feet, smashed it to pieces, ground it to powder so it was no more. And that was the summary that Daniel gave to the king. There's a little power coming from nowhere from and it's going to smash these human kingdoms and absolutely destroy them and it will grow till it fills the whole earth. That's the picture, friends. Jesus Christ is coming to smash human systems and set up God's kingdom on the earth which will last forever. Now, you might say, well, you know, couldn't God do it a bit more gently? than smashing all the human kingdoms? Isn't there a better way? But we know what happened when Jesus came to the first time to the earth. They crucified him in agony. And you say to me, oh, I'm sure it'd be better the second time round. Why did they crucify him? Because Jesus threatened power, influence and money. Do you think it'd be any different at his second coming? He was still challenged. Power, 
influence and money. So he will be greeted with the same response. In fact, there's one of the Psalms, you might have a rough idea, that there's a book called the Psalms in the Bible, beautiful songs, which were written by King David and others. And the second one of those songs or Psalms records the attitude the nations will have when Jesus Christ stands on the earth. The kings of the earth will rise up and the rulers of the earth will take counsel together against the Lord, against God himself and against Jesus Christ. And when they rise up, God is not going to tolerate this, nor will Jesus Christ, his son. God, who sits in the heavens, will laugh at them. He'll say, who do you think you are to try and stop my purpose? And God says, you can see it in about the sixth line down, I have set my son on my holy hill of Zion. Well, it's not too hard to guess who the son might be. It must be Jesus Christ. And what does Zion mean? Well, it's just another name for Jerusalem. So God declares his intention to put his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as king in Jerusalem. And it's no good the nation's rebelling. They will rebel. They will say, we we don't want to be subject to this new king. And God says, well, I will laugh at them from heaven and I will impose my will upon them. And the last verse says, Be wise, O kings. Don't rebel. Don't refuse to submit. Kiss the sun as you would bow and kiss the hand of a great monarch. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and ye perish. So this is what it's going to be like when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Now, this picture of Christ's coming of judging the nations of the world and reigning in Jerusalem is found right throughout the Bible. 170 years ago, a Christadelphian wrote particularly of the power of which we are going to talk tonight, the power of Russia, which will be involved in a great conflict in the latter days. He wrote this, The future movements of Russia are notable signs of the times because they are predicted in the scriptures of truth. So in 1870, he said the movements of Russia are important signs of the times we live in because they are predicted in the Bible. Now, you might say, really? Oh, I thought you Christadelphians just dreamt up this lecture because there was a war in Ukraine. No, no. We've been teaching this for, not me, but our community has been teaching this for 172 years. That's an awful long time. And you might say, well, if you've been teaching it for 172 years, why hasn't it happened yet? Well, God has a long time frame. He says, a day with me is like a thousand years. I've got time, says God. All in good time, it will all happen. This Christadelphian John Thomas went on to say, the Russian autocracy in its fullness and on the verge of dissolution 
is the image of Nebuchadnezzar standing on the mountains of Israel, ready to be smitten by the stone. So he fills this out. Who is this statue that's going to stand up in the last days and be hit by the stone? Well, it's the Russian autocracy. You know, I've seen that word autocracy in the media about Vladimir Putin, right? He thinks he's an autocrat. So we are seeing this autocracy, this dominating man who is rising in his fullness and on the verge of the dissolution of his power, he will be the image of Nebuchadnezzar standing up. Where's he going to stand? Upon the mountains of Israel. And he's going to be smitten by the stone. Well, I can tell you who the stone is because Jesus said, I am the stone. Matthew's gospel, he tells us that he is the stone. He is the one who is coming to smite the kingdoms of men and to bring about their destruction. He then went on to say, when Russia makes its grand move for the building up of its image empire, let the reader of my book know that the end of all things as present constituted is at hand. The long expected but stealthy advent of the king of Israel will be on the eve of becoming a fact. When you see Russia building up, know this, if you're reading my book, his book was called Elpis Israel, which is Greek for the hope of Israel. If you read my book, if you see Russia building up its empire, then know that we are in the end. And I suggest to you what we are seeing at the moment is Russia building up its empire. So let us know that we are on the verge of the long-expected but stealthy advent of Christ, the King of Israel, will become a fact. So it's long-expected. You know, people from many ages have thought, oh, I think Jesus Christ will come in my day. Oh, I hope Jesus Christ comes tomorrow. It never quite happened, but everyone's had this expectation of the coming of the Lord Jesus. And when we see Russia building up, we know it's on the eve of becoming a fact. So tonight we're going to talk a little bit about this man, Vladimir Putin. Lots of people pronounce his names different ways, but I think we've all seen a lot of him in the last two weeks. Now, people used to think he was a nice guy, fairly flexible, easy to get on with. Donald Trump told us he was a genius. Um, everyone has different opinions about this man, but most people thought he was a pretty all right sort of fellow, except two weeks ago he put out this snarling YouTube or video, which we found on YouTube, where he's saying, oh, I'm going to get those Ukrainians. And eventually, of course, he moved in. Now, why are Christadelphians so struck on Russia? Because as John Thomas said, this is written in the Bible. And you say, where is it written in the Bible? Well, you read it tonight in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 2. Now, various translations have various wordings of Ezekiel 38 verse 2. 
I was talking to some people on Zoom in China, and their translation for the word um, chief is rosh. And that might be in your Bible. Translations are a bit divided, but it seems to be the word rosh. It's a name. Set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh. Now, who is this prince of Rosh who heads up the land of Magog? Well, I don't think that is an impossible riddle to solve. There's no power called Rosh today, obviously, but Rosh is the ancient name of Russia. So on my shelf at home, I've got a dictionary of Hebrew words by a man called Jesenius. And when I open up his dictionary of Hebrew words, he says this word Rosh in Ezekiel 38 verse 2 is undoubtedly the Russians. He doesn't say, oh, could be the Russians. He says, as a Hebrew expert, having read the history I think it's undoubtedly the Russians. So we got the name of Russia in Ezekiel 38, verse 2. And other historians say the similar thing. Bocart, in his um, historical geography, wrote, Rosh in Ezekiel 38, verse 2, is the most ancient form under which history makes mention of Russia. More recently, in the 20th century, Merrill Unger, who produced geographies of Bible lands, he said, however, when other evidence is considered, there can be little doubt that the reference in Ezekiel 38 verse 2 is to the nation Russia. There is no other reasonable alternative. You might say, oh, oh I'm not sure, but this man's done a lot of study of Bible names and he's very confident there is no other reasonable alternative. Well, what about this name Gog in verse 1? Set your face against Gog. What does Gog mean? Who is the Gog? Well, the word Gog in Hebrew means one at the top or a roof, the one in charge, right? It's like a supreme dictator who will control the others. Well, the Russians have a long history of having supreme dictators. They've had their czars. They're used to dictators for hundreds of years of domination, Catherine the Great and Peter the Great and all the rest of them. And Stalin, Lenin and Putin just fit this mould of having a dictator and having domination. In fact, they ran a survey of Russians and said, would you, would you like a dictator or do you want to have democracy? They said, no, no, we'll have a dictator, thanks. That's unthinkable to us as Aussies, but that's the way they have been used to it, as long as things go well. So there's Mr Putin, a slightly strange man. Here he is two weeks ago having a discussion with the President of France, Emmanuel Macron, and he's got this huge table and they sit at opposite ends of the table. I don't know whether he's scared of catching COVID or some other bug from Mr Macron, but he doesn't look very friendly, does he? They sat there for five hours talking. 
But as the weeks have gone on, the gap between Mr. Macron and Mr. Putin is getting wider and wider. In fact, Mr. Putin seems to be running out of allies around the world. Last week, there was a vote at the United Nations General Assembly, and there was only five nations that supported Russia. Belarus, right next door to them. North Korea, always a bit interesting country, isn't it? Syria, that Russia helped Mr. Assad win. Eritrea, uh, a little country in, in Africa. And Venezuela, another dictator who depends upon Russia. Just five of them. That's all the support he had. And 140-something voted against him. Wasn't, wasn't that good for Mr. Putin. But this chapter, Ezekiel 38, describes him in a grand alliance with lots of other powers. So they're described in verse 5 as Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, verse 6, Goma and Tagama. And there's an important little piece of the puzzle in verse 2. It says this prince will rule, the prince of Rosh will come from the land of Magog. Now, where on earth is the land of Magog? Well, we can thank a couple of historians, one well and around Ezekiel's day and one a little later, for helping us identify where Magog is. So the Jewish historian Josephus, around the time of Jesus, said Magog founded those who were named the Magogites, but the Greeks called the Scythians. And other sources hint that the Magogites, the land of Magog, was a territory of these people called the Scythians. Well, that's only step one. Where did the Scythians live? Well, we know from Herodotus, an ancient historian, just after the times of Ezekiel, and he wrote in one of his books, Histories Book 4, that the land of Magog was between the river Danube, which goes up through Europe, and the river Don on the edge of Russia and all the country in between. Well, I ask you, you may know much, never been on the river Danube, and you might not know much about European geography, but what countries are in the land of Magog? Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, Romania, half of Hungary, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, right? These are all countries of Magog. Do you think you'd feel very comfortable if you were in these countries? Oh, and I forgot Poland, right? How are all the weapons coming across the Ukraine border at the moment? Through Poland. But it's, it's also in this terrible territory of Magog that Rosh will dominate in the end times. So I want to present to you a map like that which puts Rosh in the area of Russia just as Jesenius and other experts tell us. I have positioned Magog just in the area of Ukraine, 
but spreading across to the river Danube. Meshach and Shubal are across to the area of the stands. Tagama, which is mentioned in verse uh, 6, is in the territory of Armenia and of eastern Turkey. The countries that are named in verse 5 are known to us. Persia, the name of Iran till quite recently, so we know where Persia is. We know where Ethiopia is and in ancient times it was possibly more Sudan. And we know where Libya is on the Mediterranean Sea. There's only one country that's slightly difficult and it's in verse 6, Goma. And some people trace this back to the Gauls and some people to the Chimerians to the Germans. I don't know whether it's France or Germany or both, but it's certainly that territory of northwestern Europe. So I've drawn all those territories in red. These are Roche and its confederacies who will launch something from the land of Magog from the territory of Ukraine. What are they going to launch? They're going to launch an invasion of the land of Israel. Yes, in that reading we had tonight, verse 8, they will gather from many people on the mountains of Israel. They're going to invade Israel. And they're going to set up their centre in the middle of the Middle East. Now, you might think, oh, no, I, I struggle to believe that. But this is what the prophet Ezekiel says, and it has never been fulfilled. Now, just to give you a hint, last week, the president of Belarus, Mr. Lukashenko, had a map up in the room where he's talking to his men, and he had it reporters in the room and they photographed the map and he showed them how Russia was going into Ukraine and next it will be going into Moldova. Well, it wouldn't make you feel too safe if you lived in Moldova, would it? Yeah? Now, I was doing this talk by Zoom to some friends in China and one of my good friends, Kay, said, hey, Bruce, through a translator, hey, Bruce, um, this is all a bit political for me. Do you think this was just Ezekiel's own idea? He just made it up? I said, well, a bit hard to believe Ezekiel made it up because verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came to me. So if the word of the Lord didn't come to Ezekiel, he was either delusional or he's a liar. Yes, I, I prefer to think that he was telling the truth, that God's word came to him. And the very last verse of Ezekiel 38 says, you will know that I am the Lord. The whole purpose is that you come to know God. So it's going to be an invasion. And, and what has to be in place before this invasion happens? Ezekiel 38 puts seven particular things that must be in place. First of all, the Jews have to be back in their land. They must be scattered. And in verse 8, they've come back 
into the land of Israel. When did that happen? Over the last 150 years. They established their state in 1948. They need to be confident. Verse 11 and 12 says they dwell safely. They need to be prosperous because the invader comes down in verse 12 to gather goods and spoil. So there's something about this territory that's worth having. There has to be a united military alliance. Verse 7, they're prepared, all their companies. And it doesn't look like Mr. Putin was all that prepared to invade Ukraine with his old tanks and giving people out old maps they couldn't even follow and his soldiers didn't know what to do. This will be highly organised. This Gog, this dominant force, will be a world power. And in verse 13, there are people described as defenders. We'll talk about them in a minute. And this invading force will not be there because they really want to be there. Verse 12 tells us that God will bring them down. Verse 4 says, I will put hooks in your jaws like I'm catching fish and I'll drag you down to this land. And verse 12 says, I will bring you down to stretch out your hand against the waste places. You'll be brought into this place. So is this whole wonderful scheme just some vague idea by this prophet Ezekiel who lived about 550 BC? No. This is God's pronouncement of the future. And it's not just found in Ezekiel's prophecy. It's found in Daniel's prophecy and in Joel's prophecy and in Zechariah's prophecy, and there's hints of it in Jesus' prophecy. It's not just a one-off. Well, coming to tonight, why the Ukraine? These poor people of Ukraine, why did Russia move on them? Well, it's very strategic in its position at the top of the Black Sea. Yes, it's a pretty good country. It's very flat. It's got some mountains in the south west, the Carpathiari Mountains. It's got a big river that runs through the middle of it, the Dnieper River, which is very good for transport and the water flows down from the Valdai Mountains in Russia. They've got lots of good characteristics. Beautiful forests in the southwest. That's a pretty magnificent tree, isn't it, in that picture? They've got Historic buildings in Lviv on the Polish border. They, they, they have the longest musical instrument in the world. It's a blessing or a curse. You can hear it 10 kilometres away. You wouldn't want them for neighbours, would you? They used to have the biggest plane in the world. Couple all those wheels. The Antonov 225. Unfortunately, the Russians bombed it, so it is no more. Yeah. They had the deepest underground train station in the world, 105 metres down but I don't know whether that's too good anymore. But agriculturally in resources, it's very rich. I heard a South Australian farmer went over there and he saw the black soil, the chemsin. They've got somewhere between a quarter and a third of all this black soil in the world. And what do you get with this black soil? Fantastic crops. So Russia and the Ukraine are known as the wheat bowl of or breadbasket of the world. 
And the Middle East is really worried. Where are we going to get our bread from if we can't get grain from Ukraine and Russia? But the Ukrainians have long memories. This smiling man called Joseph Stalin deprived them of their grain back in 1932-33. And they have memorials around that sadly remember the millions, millions that died through Stalin's rotten schemes. Do you think they ever had an enormous love for the Russians? I don't think so. They also have incredible supplies of iron ore and gas. In iron ore, their third top reserves in the world behind Russia, who might be number two. Australia and Ukraine is number three. There's lots of resources that are not yet developed. But none of that explains why Putin wants Ukraine. It was the heart of what was called the Kievan Rus Empire in 1000 AD. Belarus, Russia and Ukraine formed an empire under this man, Vladimir I. Vladimir? Yeah, like Putin. But in Ukrainian it's more Volodymyr. And here's some statues of Volodymyr. So we have two Volodymyrs. We have Volodymyr Zelensky, the current president of Ukraine, and we have Vladimir Volodymyr Putin, the president of Russia. And these two men are at loggerheads. But they want it back for strategic reasons. Now here's their map of the USSR, the Soviet Union, and there was Ukraine right at the western end, and they want it back. As I said, it's part of the place of Magog, which, according to Bible prophecy, they must possess. Do I, do I think that Russia will defeat Ukraine in these few weeks coming? It may or may not. But according to Bible prophecy, I'm sure that before Jesus Christ comes back, these territories will fall into the hands of the Russians. Yeah, you went back 30 years ago when Ukraine was released from the Soviet Union. Everybody said, that's the end of communism. The USSR's fallen apart, no more, it's finished. Red is dead, said a Canadian magazine. But just 21 years later, we find that it's not quite so dead, and they're building incredible armaments. They haven't even rolled out the vacuum bombs, the thermobaric bombs, which you drop on a city and you just kill people by sucking the oxygen out of their lungs. They haven't even dropped any of the small atom bombs, nuclear bombs, which would wipe out Kiev and surrounding cities. But there's no doubt that they are building capability. Now, that they wanted this land is well understood. It's back a few years. In 1991, that previous President Gorbachev said, we need Ukraine and Belarus. Without Ukraine, we do not have the USSR. An Australian journalist eight years ago wrote an article in The Australian. And he says, look, this, this chap's well retired by now. He's older than me. He's an old bloke. But he wrote, um, Putin has a barely camouflaged dream 
of recreating and rebuilding a greater Russian Empire, Soviet Union style. So when you see trouble in Ukraine, I believe this is Putin's plan. He quotes a former White House security advisor and a previous American president who said, without Ukraine, Russia ceases to be an empire, but with Ukraine suborned and subordinated, Russia automatically becomes an empire. In other words, they must take Ukraine to regain their position in the world. He went on to write, this is eight years ago, you know, had to wait eight years to see Putin really move on this, but this is what he wrote. Putin wants to create a new political and economic Eurasian, Europe and Asia, dominated by Moscow. Ukraine, which won its independence during the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, has extensive economic resources, iron ore, gas, agriculture, it's seen as a jewel in the crown of the Putin plant. This is an Aussie guy who lives in Sydney. But eight years ago, he could see where Putin wanted to go. He said, Putin is unlikely to learn from his mistakes and he wants to assert himself in the Middle East. He has. He's in Syria with Assad since he wrote this. Putin is nothing if not determined to demonstrate and exert Russian power and influence he wants to compete with the world and come out in front, whatever the cost. Can you see that today? Does he care about the cost? How many soldiers are dying? Seemingly not. So today's cartoon in the Guardian newspaper was Vladimir Putin looking in the mirror and who finally stares back at him but Vladimir Zelensky, his opponent two Vladimirs against each other. So Vladimir or Volodymyr Zelensky is the most unlikely hero in Ukraine. But he's welded this country together. You know, he started out on the left as a comedian, then ran his own TV programs, and there is his wife, Alina, and she hated him becoming a politician. So she's running around in... Kiev today trying to save people and help people. Not quite what she wanted. And there's Volodymyr Zelensky on the right in his battle fatigues, getting in and fighting with his people. And what a fight they've put up so far. They've been using Turkish drones, US missiles of various sorts, captured Russian weapons. They even have some leftover Russian missiles that they can shoot the planes down with and they're hoping to get some American planes via Poland. Hasn't quite happened yet. And, and the Ukrainians say, well, you know, we, we, we're, we're really hammering them. We've killed more than 11,000 Russian soldiers and hundreds of vehicles and tanks and artillery. And whether these are idle boasts, there's no doubt that the plan hasn't quite worked out for Vladimir Putin. In the news today were stories about this this man, um, a major general who was shot by the Ukrainians and they're losing some top generals. What about the West? You know, is the West going to do nothing? Well, look what's happened the last two weeks. Is the West doing much? 
Oh, well, we'll cheer you on, Mr. Zaletsky, but don't expect us to put any boots on the ground. Well, that's always been the, the uh, American attitude. My friend in China said, yeah, what about the Americans? They're always troublemakers. And I said, well, they didn't start World War I and they didn't start World War II and I think they're trying to not use their forces in Europe. So what about the West? Well, they are in Ezekiel 38. There's this power called Tarshish, which I'd identify as the UK. And there's these powers called Sheba and Dedan, which we would associate, well, we know, were in the southern Arabian Peninsula. And these are the people who complain when Russia and the European forces attack Israel. Well, it's pretty interesting what's going on there because the Saudis were never friends of Israel and yet the other day the titular head of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, came out and said, you know what, Israel could be our ally. After years of hating Israel, they now say, ah, I think we could be friends with Israel. Well, that's exactly what I was expecting from Ezekiel chapter 38. Well, friends, all I can tell you is it's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better because there is going to be conflict. It's going to be conflict into which the Lord Jesus Christ steps with a message of peace. Prepare war. Let all the men of war draw near. Turn your agricultural instruments into weapons. Don't worry about growing crops. Let us have a conflict. Christ himself told us about a great battle of God Almighty and Christ used the word Armageddon. People, people think it's a Hollywood word. Well, it's not a Hollywood word. It's the word that the Lord Jesus Christ used to describe the great battle at his second coming. I can talk to you afterwards if you'd like some further expansion of that idea. Now, what, what happens with this great war in Ezekiel 38 when, when this power of Russia and its allies invade the land of Israel? Well, indeed, there will be a conflict on the mountains of Israel. Ezekiel 38 describes how God will be very angry at what happens to his people Israel. There'll be a, a terrible earthquake, which other prophets like Zechariah also describe. The, the forces of Gog, this confederacy from the north, will be in confusion and God will fight against them with the natural elements. The armies of the invader will be destroyed and everybody will know through these shocking events that there is a God in Israel. You know, on Saturday, the Jewish leader, the Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, on the Jewish Sabbath, flew all the way from Tel Aviv to Moscow to see Vladimir Putin. And they sat down in the Kremlin for three hours on Saturday to talk Turkey. And Naftali Bennett thought he could be a peace broker. And when he'd finished with Putin, he flew on to Germany 
to see Mr. Schultz, the Chancellor of Germany. So here is a Jewish man who thinks that he can step in and bring some peace. Will he bring some temporary peace? I don't know, but he thinks he is capable of this. But you know, friends, I think we should look for another Jewish man who truly can, can bring peace. And the book of Revelation depicts the Lord Jesus Christ going out to conquer the world on a white horse, the, the colour of peace and righteousness. He rides with the sword going out of his mouth, which are the wonderful words that he speaks, and he's going out to transform the world to create a time of peace. And in the Old Testament, we are told when this man would come, when the baby would be born to Mary in Bethlehem. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given and he will take the government. When it says the government will be upon his shoulder, he will be like bearing the weight of the government of the whole world. And what will Jesus Christ be called? He'll be called Wonderful. Counselor, the wise one, the mighty God. He will be a father to the people of the world and he will be the prince of peace. And when Jesus Christ sits on his throne in Jerusalem, there will be peace for the whole world. His government and peace will continue as he sits upon the throne of his father David. And he will establish it with judgment and with justice. Here is the first politician ever who is totally incorruptible. He will not be tainted by corruption or self-interest because all he'll be interested in is the transformation of the world. I want to take you in conclusion to Micah chapter 4, an Old Testament prophet and if you can't find it in a Bible towards the end of the Old Testament, don't worry, I'll just read out these words to you. Micah describes the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us in verse 1 that in the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established on the top of the mountains. There will be a house in Jerusalem, a house of worship, and everybody will go there. In fact, it says in the end of verse 1, people will flow up to it, flow uphill against nature. They will want to go to Jerusalem, to the house of God. Verse 2, many nations shall come and say, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And what will happen when we get there? Verse 2, he will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths for out of Zion the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God's word will go out. The word of the way to really live your lives in a really happy and enjoyable way. Not in a human way of consuming it on ourselves, but in a joyful way which contributes to the well-being of loving God and loving our neighbour. Verse 3. The ruler... In Jerusalem, 
The Lord Jesus Christ shall judge between many peoples. He will rebuke the nations. He will say, stop your bad behaviour. Stop trying to take each other's territory. Stop trying to kill each other. Stop trying to destroy the planet with burning up fossil fuels. Stop it all. We've got a new world now, and I am the king. He will stop war. End of verse 3 says, Neither shall they learn war anymore. You know, some of these, these missiles that the Ukrainian soldiers are firing at Russian tanks cost $40,000 a, a blow. And there's people wandering around the earth hungry and we're firing missiles at each other. It's utter madness. Jesus Christ comes to change it. Verse 4, what an idyllic situation. Everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Imagine that, growing a fig tree, growing the vines across it and everybody enjoying the peace and harmony. Verse 4, here's the promise to the people of the Ukraine tonight and the people of Australia. No one shall make them afraid. Nobody will be afraid anymore. No more fear. Yeah, you'd be fearful tonight to walk across some streets of Adelaide, wouldn't you? Let alone walk through the streets of Kiev. But in this day, Nobody will have any more fear anymore because the Prince of Peace will reign. Well, friends, Jesus Christ said, happy are the humble because they can inherit the earth. Do you want to be there with Jesus Christ to help change the world? Well, let's humble ourselves. Let's listen to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's trust in him. Let's see the unfolding world events, as bad as they are, to know that there is something better coming for you, your family, for the people in your neighbourhood. This is the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and for me. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.